Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And a great big thank you goes out to Samuel G., Jacqueline K., Brent J., and Ryan M., all of whom have made donations to the salon during the past two weeks, and those donations will be going directly towards offsetting some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. I also would like to thank my writing patrons over on Patreon.com. Without their help, I don't know where I'd be today because, well, their monthly contributions have made the difference in my ability to pay the rent after our landlord bumped it up $400 a month. But uh, those 73 people have collectively come together to donate a little bit over that amount. And uh, while $1 or $2 a month may not seem like much, but when it's combined with a couple of dollars from a lot of other people, well, it's made a very significant improvement in my life and my wife's life. So I thank you one and all, donors to the salon and to my patrons. Uh, I thank you all from the top to the bottom of my heart. So now let's get on with today's program. Over the uh, past several podcasts from the Salon One track, I've been uh, playing a recording of a course that Terrence McKenna taught at CIIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies, and it's a talk that I thought was recorded in April 1993. However, uh, (laughs) after previewing today's installment, it became quite clear that this recording was actually made in 1995 and not in 1993. So as we listen to this talk today, I think it's uh, probably wise to pay attention to what some of the attendees have to say, particularly in regard to their hopes and fears about what was then yet to be the 2012 event, or the non-event as it turned out. And if, uh, like me, you marvel at how naive they were in their almost apocalyptic views of what they thought was to come, Well, then, also, it's probably good to reflect on how fearful and strange and otherworldly some of the opinions are of those who are our friends, relatives, neighbors, and co-workers today. (laughs) In every generation, there seem to be things that, uh, well, if we aren't careful, they can distract us from the parts of our days that are, in fact, quite lovely. In other words, uh, and I'm talking to myself here, It seems that uh, most of the bad things that actually happen in our lives don't really come around all that often. And so let's not uh, let the worries and fears of what's to come distract us from the little joys that most of us encounter each day. I still remember many of the stories that my parents and grandparents told me about the times that they made it through, and relatively speaking, I'm not only living a lot better than they ever did, I'm actually living a more comfortable life than did the King of England when my great-grandparents were born. (laughs) I don't really know where all that came from, because all that I meant to say was that we shouldn't be too smug about the fears had about 2012 back in 1995 when, uh, well, we have our own catalog of affairs yet today. So now let's get to the continuation of what I now suspect is a 1995 and not 1993 Terrence McKenna class that was held for students at CIIS in San Francisco. Did that, did you 
background. The, the question relates to um, an incident told about in both my book with Dennis, uh, Invisible Landscape, and in True Hallucination, yeah. creatively agitated under the influence of mushrooms, announced that he could do something, which is very hard to describe what it was. It was sort of like turn himself inside out, trigger the end of the world, uh, open a doorway into hyperspace, something like that. Anyway, some highly touted dramatic thing. He organized an experiment to test the theory, and the result of the experiment was not nothing, which was what I was betting on, not what he said would happen, which what he was betting on, but a very peculiar uh, incident then was generated where he seemed to uh, lose his mind, to put it simply, for about three weeks, but in a very specialized and orderly way. And I seemed to uh, also undergo a, a, a parallel but different kind of transformation. And the theory that was being manipulated was a theory that involved using vocally produced tones to acoustically cancel metabolizing psychedelic molecules in the body so that they would bond uh, as dimers into DNA. In other words, so that they would intercalate into DNA. The hypothesis which lie behind all this was that DNA must be the storage, the physical storage site for memories. This is not a popular idea. This is a sneered at idea. But um, it, memory is a great problem for modern science. Uh, you know, we've decoded DNA, we've got the top quark, we've measured the core temperature of Betelgeuse, we have no idea how memory works. It's absolutely confounding. Uh, because a, a, a woman, a man of 90 years old, can remember the way their great-grandmother's skirts smelled when they used to crawl up into her lap when they were four years old. It was 86 years ago. During that time, every molecule in the body has been cycled out every five to seven years. So it's ten bodies away is the body that crawled up into that woman's lap and could smell the starch in her skirts, and yet the memory is completely clear. Where are the memories? And as you know, uh, uh, experiments have been done with ablating large parts of the brain or studying people who are the unfortunate victims of very traumatic head injuries. And there are cases in the me medical literature of people who have fully 80% of their physical brain destroyed and no memory impairment whatsoever. So where are the memories? Well, uh, there are a number of theories 
but there is nothing more than theory at this point. Dennis said, let's assume nature is conservative for a moment. We know that nature stores protein code in DNA, and we know that DNA has large silent portions and in fact, some of you may have seen the data which came out just recently that those large silent portions of the DNA uh, exhibit the same uh, mathematical properties as language. Did you all read this? Oh, this is hot news, folks. As you know, DNA codes for protein. That code is only about 6% of the DNA chain. The rest of the DNA, the other 94% is called silent DNA or by some people junk DNA because it doesn't code for proteins. So what does it do? Well, recently they've been sequencing this junk DNA and then studying it with algorithms used by the CIA to detect code in noise and they discover that the silent portions of the DNA fit all the necessary criterion of language. They have syntactical structure. This seems to support Dennis's contention, which was, and it's very, it would be very controversial, you see, because it's a Lamarckian mechanism. It's saying that experience can modify nuclear DNA, which is denied by anti-Lamarckian evolution. That's not the way it's supposed to work, according to Darwin and the neo-Darwinians. Uh, nevertheless, uh, if we don't believe that it, the only part of the body which is not traded out many times over the course of a long lifetime, the only part of the body which you are born with and die with is neural DNA neural DNA, what you're born with, you keep. Therefore, it's reasonable, following good scientific method, to hypothesize that the neural DNA must be where the memories are. Well, then Dennis's idea was that ordinary experience has to do with serotonin uh, dropping into a relationship of bonding with DNA and, vi and giving off a signal, like a radio transmitter, of the structural hyperfine ESR of the DNA and that that then constitutes the electrobiochemical foundation of the experience of thought. And so what he was saying was then what these psychedelics are is they're like different kinds of, of transmitters, stronger or transmitting in different wavelengths, or transmitting with a higher bandwidth. And it is known, in fact, that these psychedelic molecules do compete with serotonin. They are serotonergic competitors. So visualize the DNA in the course of metabolism unfolding and folding itself to expose various runs of nucleotides to ribosomal coding into RNA. And in this, in this molecular environment, these drug molecules are whirling around and by Brownian motion or by enzymatic delivery, it the details don't matter, the, these molecules intercalate 
meaning they slip neatly between the nucleotides. Many drugs do this. This is known. Uh, but most drugs or compounds, when they intercalate into DNA, they, they distort the twisting of it. And it, it's dysfunctional. It messes up. The thing can't transcript anymore. These drug molecules, if you look at them, they're usually a, a pentaxial five-sided central group with a, a two uh, benzene rings or a benzene ring and a partial benzene ring hanging off of this thing. And they're flat. It's flat. They're planar. It means if you could blow up a psilocybin molecule to the size of a cutting board, it would be about as thin as a cutting board and as wide and as long. Those Flat molecules fit right in between the nucleotides. Yes. And when this happens, uh, the electron spin resonance signal is amplified, just as though a more efficient uh, transceiver had been dropped into place. And w you can measure the hyperfine ESR signature of DNA in, a, in an in vitro laboratory situation. This is not mysterious. So the idea then is that we have a family of molecules, endogenous neurotransmitters like serotonin, acetylcholine, so forth and so on, and exogenous neurotransmitters like psilocybin, DM, uh, DNA, I'm sorry, psilocybin, mescaline, and then exogenous endogenous like DMT found inside and outside the body. And it may be that what the evolution of consciousness is, is the slow trading in of low-gain molecular transceivers like serotonin for much more broadband high-gain uh, molecular transceivers like DMT. So Dennis's idea was to take all this theory that I just laid out and then use acoustically produced vocal sound to cancel uh, the charge of these molecules. And as you probably know, or maybe you don't know, when, they, when, the, uh, when a molecule becomes superconducting, it will bond into anything. It becomes a hyper-bonding uh, molecule. It will bond anywhere. So theoretically, if you could cause uh, psychedelic molecules during their act of being intercalated into your genetic material to become superconducting, even for a moment, they would lock in permanently. And you would begin uh, to have uh, a very deep, a much deeper experience of consciousness. It would be much broader, much deeper. He claimed he could do this, but he also went further and claimed, and this is where I am not good at explaining it because I didn't understand it then and I don't understand it now, but he claimed that the, in the act of becoming superconducting and intercalating, this thing would cause the molecule to undergo something which he named, he called it dextrorotary, uh, hyperdextrorotation, which means simply that it would turn inside out and he said then that you would produce something, and, you know, I'm embarrassed at the strangeness of the concept, but that you could in some sense 
give birth to your own soul that something could be generated out of your body which you would have a high degree of personal identification with because it would in fact be the central essence of yourself it would be he made analogies to the philosopher's stone to the flying saucer to the birth of an idea it's the idea that you could create what he called translinguistic matter that means a form of an ontological form of being which looks like matter but which behaves like mind uh, and and that somehow this would trigger uh, the collapse of his of the illusion of history and everything would be swept uh, into the presence of almighty god upon her throne or something like that anyway that was the notion and in proceeding to carry out this experiment which i just thought was madness and would result in nothing and then we could go back to botanizing uh instead it it in a sense it seemed to work the condensation of the philosopher's stone and the collapse of the historical state vector uh is slightly delayed but the rest of it seems right on track in that when he began when he threw the switch as he said the harming switch he went bonkers basically for about 21 days in a very complicated way which he had anticipated he said there is a small chance that i will be turned inside out not my body but my mind and it seemed as though that was precisely what had happened he could he could recite the alphabet backwards he spoke in a language which if you got him to spell it you could turn it around and you could see these were full sentences uh but spoken backwards in other words he, he truly seemed to be running backwards while we were all the rest of us were running forward well after about 21 days that faded and he got his act together and went back to get multiple phd's in molecular biology pharmacognosy and what have you coincident with the throwing of the switch i who had been the skeptic noticed that it was it was as though a switch had been thrown in me and i began to understand it was not like any drug i'd ever taken it was not like psilocybin or ayahuasca there were no hallucinations but what began to happen was i simply began to understand faster and faster and faster and faster so fast that i was just walking around on these jungle trails holding my head going uh-huh i see yes and it was opening up ahead of me and uh, i eventually this understanding settled down into the theory of the time wave which i will not play you with because this is a course in psychobotany not a course in megalomania revealed uh but but what i finally came to rest with was a complete model of space and time as which is what you would end up with 
if, if he had succeeded. He said it would condense into three-dimensional space and end history and everyone would leave their factories and offices and discard their clothes and with tears of joy streaming down their faces begin to form the cosmic round dance that precedes the departure for Alpha in Sagittarius. Well, that remains uh, a future promise uh, to be redeemed. But what happened to me was I obtained this strange idea out of the I Ching uh, that offered me a complete model of space and time and the future and the past and from, has continued to be the touchstone of my intellectual life. So I think that, you know, we can argue for hours, although it's probably not worth doing, about whether anything at all happened at La Chirera. I was there. I should mention I didn't sleep for 11 days. And it was the most amazing 11 days I've ever had. I, I was absolutely ecstatic. I barely ate. And uh, I, I was full of compassion and understanding for everyone and their limitations in this terrible dilemma because we were, you know, a thousand miles up the Rio baboon asshole with no airplanes and no radios and here my brother proceeds to go nuts and I'm saying it's okay but the world may end in a few days and on and on. Um, it took me about five years to get myself publicly presentable. In that time, my, I was a burden to my friends and a joy to my enemies because I just appeared, I appeared to be a social menace, you know. I could back people into a Denny's and hold them there for 16 hours at a stretch with a wrap so alarming and appalling that people would just back to the wall to wait to see if I was going to explode. Uh, it was simply, it, it takes a long time. You have to leaven it with humor and self-criticism and convince people that you don't take yourself seriously and all these things to make it palatable. Uh, Yeah, that is true hallucination. And I think that, you know, if you want to read an eye-opening book, if you haven't read it, read Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. Because what you'll learn there, to your amazement, is that these great intellectual breakthroughs like Newton and Einstein and, and Planck and so forth, they don't come out of careful examination of the evidence and conservative adumbration of theories and all. No, they don't come like that. They come like revelations, you know, completely. And then you argue backward to convince your colleagues. You go out and you get the evidence and you argue backward and you convince everybody. And then everybody says, well, it was obvious all the time. And anyway, they knew it 50 years earlier and on and on and on. But that, that's what you have to do. So. I uh, have stuck with this, uh, my devotion to psychedelics, because it gave me really my greatest wish, which was I want to have a, a complete understanding of how things work. That doesn't mean there is no more surprises, but it means you, you at least have a, a structure that you can pour it into. And I think this is what shamans do. 
they create a personal ideology sufficient to their needs, and my needs are complex because I live in a society where I'm going to be talking to quantum physicists, mathematicians, historians of science, epistemologists, so forth and so on. So I, I had, it had to perform at top speed. If you're in a rainforest situation, in a culture, in a monoculture, then it, it is perhaps not so challenging. But the point of all this is catalysis of ideas. You know, culture can evolve no faster than its language. It can evolve no faster than the models that it can set up for itself to achieve. And that requires language. So I take the psychedelics to be catalysts of language. They probably caused it to come into existence in the first place. And then they continue to push it forward into new domains. And this great period of creativity that we're living through now in the sciences, in the arts, in the implementation of exotic technologies, I think this is the real legacy of the 60s. The people who run these fancy computer companies and the World Wide Web and the NET and CERN and all that, they're all freaks. They're all people who came up through the 60s and have somehow fitted themselves in uh, to straight society. But the great bulk of creative work is in the society in those areas is being done by people who took psychedelics. And in fact, arguably, the, the scientists of today, the, the technological implementers of today, are in fact shamans. And we are creating a kind of culturally validated shamanic superspace, except we call it cyberspace. But all we're doing with the creation of cyberspace is hardwiring in a male way what has always been there in a female way. I mean, the, the web of invisible hidden associations that make us the cosmos instead of the chaos. Well, that seems to be an overlong answer to a question I've forgotten. Uh, yeah. This um, was happening from 2012, and what, what do you think, what, what's your idea of what's going to happen in 2012? All points will become cotangent in a, in a superspace. Can't say. Not that we don't know. Can't say. Language is not capable of describing a cotangent hyperspace. Well, that's not open in all dimensions, or...? Yeah, basically, you will be everybody, everybody will be you, you will be everywhere, you will be every when, you will be every which, and every when, which, and where will be you. All assumptions of distinctness will be illusory. And so we can see this happening. I mean, the, the people are fond of saying the Earth has shrunk to a point under the influence of electronic technology. It's a nice way of putting it, but it's just beginning. The World Wide Web further shrinks it. And when the World Wide Web is virtual and an implant behind your eyelids, and, 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 I mean, you can carry out these fantasies for yourself. Coming a little bit more sooner than Tibbler's piece, 
Yeah, mine's the earliest of all of the non-completely insane people, or the latest of the completely insane people. Yeah. They, according to their
and then to, to spread that hope. There is no other ideology of hope on this planet. Christianity is so dramatically on the ascendant because it offers otherworldly hope. It denies this world. It consigns it to the flames and asks you to seek salvation in some other world. Secular humanism and its various forms, capitalism, so forth and so on, offers nothing but more stuff. You know, they are willing to hasten the end in order to keep people playing deck tennis while the Titanic goes down. Uh, there is no sanctionable position of hope except the belief that history is ending and that the acceleration of novelty, which we see happening back and back, the further back in time you go, the less novel things are and the slower time moves. Now we have come to the place where time is moving very quickly so that by a moment in the future as near as 2012, we may traverse as much distance as we've traversed from the Big Bang to this afternoon in terms of how quickly things are going to unfold. James Joyce said, man will be dirgeable. It's a wonderful thing to uh, hope for. One thing that I mean, I've been fascinated with the time wave since I first heard about it, but do you have, one thing that's always bothered me is, uh, is there some objective way to quantify this novelty? I mean, um, other than by asking parents or someone else looking at the wave to say, whoa, well, here's a big ball, and obviously there was novelty at this time. If we just look back here, we find, aha, that's when Poland fell to the Germans, you know? I mean, can we somehow work the other way and, and look at a historical record, plot out the novelty without reference to time waves, and then look back to the time waves and see if we were right? The problem is, you see, that history is not a quantifiable entity. There's no theory that agrees on how we quantify history. I mean, do we give the War of the Roses a 10 and the 30 Years War a 42? How do we do that? Uh, I maintain that we can't scientifically prove it, but we can make a very strong case because the ebb and flow of novelty uh, continues. And we can look back in the past and see that where there were vast descents into novelty, novelty certainly occurred. I'm willing to go out on a limb because next year is a very dramatic descent into novelty on the time wave. I'm willing to go out on a limb and say if next year doesn't deliver, I'll be willing to seriously talk about cashing it in uh, because next year is predicted by the time wave to be an enormously dramatic year. And in a sense, we can already see the prophecy fulfilling it. We know there will be a presidential election next year. We know this society will go mad and rip itself apart for months over that. We also know that there will be a presidential election in Russia next year. They will probably put our act in the shade when they begin to rip their society apart. Uh, a revolution in China, that would affect a, a third of mankind. That's scheduled, that's on the menu. Uh, it's possible that next year is the year when even doubters realize that global warming 
is upon us. In other words, worldwide climate upheaval. So we're going to have all, some, if not all, of those things next year. And I maintain it could even be the unexpected. As I said to somebody today, you know, if the Kobe earthquake had been Tokyo, the capital retraction from the rest of the world by Japanese banks would have sent us into the Stone Age. And, you know, uh, there are uh, this gas attack. It was designed to kill millions. It just happened to be botched. The attack on the World Trade Center was designed to kill hundreds of thousands of people. It happened to be botched, but they're not all going to be botched. The nuts are out there. And uh, so I, I think that what we are seeing is a recapitulation of much of the past several thousand years of history in a very compressed form as we get closer and closer to the transcendental object at the end of time. And sh shamanism has always been the technique for anticipating and mapping this transcendental object. In a pre-scientific world, you get a vocabulary that is religious, that, you know, there is a force in the universe not a sparrow falls, but that this force doesn't take note of it. This force is love. This force created everything. This force cares for us. We are its children. It is calling us to return to its essence. I mean, this is a, a religious vocabulary. But in the 20th century, we, we've gone beyond that. We're no longer moving in a, in a coinage of emotional terms. We can say, you know, God is physics. God is the universe trying to birth itself into a higher dimension. God is the, is the universe's appetite for self-reflective complexity coming into its fullest flower. And then the, different, the distinctions between science and religion are seen to be small potatoes Indeed, I mean, we can calculate our way towards the second coming, I maintain. Well, this is somewhat far afield of most people's ideas of what constitutes botanical shamanism, <laughs> but not mine, because I, I think uh, that we could have lived in the light of this gnosis and never made the descent into history that we made with the abandonment of uh, partnership, society, psychedelic religion, pastoralism, and so forth. We were designed to live in paradise until the coming of the kingdom, but instead we fell into history, which is a kind of hell, where the animal nature was able to reassert its power over the human dream. And we have lived in that with that paradox now for some 12,000 years and it's left us fairly frazzled and sketched out uh, I think well if this is what is on a macro scale happening to the human race and this goes back to the question some time ago of what should be done if this is what's happening on a fractal macrocosm then what you can do to aid this process is just accelerate your own arrival at the omega point. And what that means is psychedelicize yourself. Begin to deconstruct the hold over your freedom that culture, history, 
biology uh, has on you and begin to experiment with the concept of yourself as a being trembling on the edge of true liberation. Because I think that's probably what you really are. Yeah. What you do to travel around the world is that dynamic between the mainstream dominator and what you look at as an emerging psychedelic culture. What kind of um, connections do you see among this emerging culture? What kind of dynamic do you see happening? Kind of a large question. Well, there are a lot of things going on. Um, the collapse of Marxism was really the collapse of everything because Marxism and capitalism were balanced against each other like a house of cards. Uh, in, the, in the absence of any intellectual critique of capitalism, capitalism is beginning to, has asserted itself with a vengeance. And what we see happening in the world, what the new world order is, is a new corporate order. And some things about it are good and some things are bad. For instance, when the world was ruled by nation states driven by ideologies, and remember that was as recently as seven years ago, when the world was ruled by nation states driven by ideologies, uh, war was a frequent instrument of national policy. Uh, racism was tolerated as a reflection of national identity. Uh, nuclear arsenals and a mutual standoff uh, in that area was tolerated. Suddenly, now, uh, a new gang is in charge. Marxism is gone. Racism in the, in the institutionalized form known as apartheid is gone. Uh, trade barriers are being lowered all over the world. And if you look at governments in the United States, in England, in France, Germany, and Japan, they are universally, and Italy, they are universally characterized by being staffed and run by jackasses. Uh, in other words, uh, high-caliber talent isn't going into government. Government is a place where the Jesse Helms of this world hang out. And when was the last time an official of the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund felt the need to threaten the life of an American president? It won't happen. Those people are heavy hitters. Only a hysterical, powerless yahoo would behave that way. Oh, that's a good question. Um, there are a number, first of all, the, the Usenet, the Alt.Drugs conference, most people know about this. There are thousands, a couple of thousand people participating in that, and it's now fragmented into Alt.Psilocybin, Alt.Psychedelic, Alt.Mescaline, uh, you know, there's a whole subset of those. If you don't like news groups, um, there is an email conference. Anybody here in that email conference? Hmm. Well, I can't. I can't remember. I was in it, but the problem with these email conferences is, you know, you think, oh, great, I'll meet some people interested in what I'm interested in. You join, and the next day there are 80 messages in your email, and you spend hours a day pouring through the the email. I just joined a conference. Uh, where I get 
dispatches from the front in Chiapas, including all the latest statements from Subcomandante Marcos, I just picked up the mail. There were 130 messages, uh, half in a language I barely read. So, uh, you know, but there, there's a lot of action uh, on the net. I have a website, too, but I'm not going to give out the public number yet because it's not cool enough yet. It's more like a construction zone with yellow ribbons strung around and a sign which says, someday something really cool will be here. That's how a lot of the Internet is. It's a vast, vast construction zone. Uh, but uh, that's probably enough on that. If you're, if you're using the Internet, you should use it more. If you're not using it, you should really put that at the top of your agenda because uh, uh, it's going to become increasingly indispensable as a part of your cultural toolbox. Uh, it, I have to pay 35 cents a minute to reach the Internet because I'm on a cellular modem from U.S. Cellular at 7200 baud and I still spend far more time and money than I should there. Yeah. Are well, this question always comes up, and my answer is the answer of a fanatic and a purist. Uh, not really. I mean, uh, the best substitute for psychedelics, which takes a lot more time, energy, and dedication, is uh, penniless travel in Asian countries. Uh, but it's not nearly as pleasant, and the risk to your gastrointestinal tract is orders of magnitude uh, greater. Um, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, and I may be a special case, more lumpen than others. I mean, uh, naturally in this business all the time I meet people who say, I, I hallucinate all the time. I, I don't understand what the excitement is about. Well, it's a very hard thing because you're con you either have to say you don't know what I'm talking about or you have to define yourself ever after as an impoverished individual uh, with a genetic constitution that places this out of your reach. If I had psychedelic experiences not in the presence of psychedelic substances, I would be alarmed. Uh, I'm not shooting for being high on the natch, why, when the substances work perfectly well and being high on the natch indicates a, a physiological situation that may be problematic or, or could be problematic. Um, I practiced yoga um, and silent sitting and I find all these things very, very interesting but pretty non-competitive with psychoactives. One of the things that was so astonishing to me when I first got into all this, my original impulse at university was toward art history. Well, art history, you study the evolution of style and motif over space and time. That's basically what it's about. And a good art historian has a fairly com complete inventory of world style which I felt I did. Well, then I took DMT, and it was absolutely 
unfamiliar. You know, I could make no comparisons. It wasn't like Tibetan tantric painting. It wasn't like Amazonian bark cloth painting. It wasn't like Jan van Eyck. It wasn't like Hieronymus Bosch or Jackson Pollock or anybody else. And I thought, <clears throat> how extraordinary. If you take the Jungian view that artists, the function of artists is to explore and communicate the unconscious to the rest of us, then how bizarre that 3,000 years of Eastern and Western art and nobody passed very close at all to the DMT space. That's why, uh, and yet it is without contest, I think, a Niagara of orgasmic beauty. I mean, if I had to say one thing that DMT is, it's, it's alien beauty. Well, if the purpose of art and those who follow Aristotelian and Platonic aesthetics believe that art, the purpose of art is the communication of the beautiful, well, why is it then that so little of this has been communicated? I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that at the peak of a psychedelic experience, you see more art in a half an hour than the human race has produced in the last thousand years. You, little you, well, the relationship then of the individual to genius is very puzzling. Any one of us, if we could just get the door jammed open, would then become a, a, a Duchamp, a, a Da Vinci, uh, in other words, a major formative force on their uh, contemporaries. I'm hoping we'll be able to do that with virtual reality. I mean, I see virtual reality as a technology that will allow one person to show another the contents of their mind. And that when we get the cross-fertilization and creativity that will flow from that, we'll create art that will make everything done to this point look like scratchings in the dirt. I mean, at least that's my, my hope. I don't think the last word has been said on this subject. In Science News last week or the week before, there are 120 anatomical differences between the brains of men and women that are not genital related. Uh, I, don't, I think that we're on the brink of a whole frontier of discovering who and what women are. They were just thought to be, uh, you know, soft boys up until fairly recently. And uh, the most uh, enthusiastic proponents of feminism, I think, don't understand how deep a subject they've grabbed onto. Uh, in a way, I would sort of plead guilty to your metaphor that I do sort of see women as out of history. They are anhistorical creatures, and men invented history, lost themselves in it, and femininity, if you want to call it that, Gaian consciousness, if you want to call it that, uh, psychedelic spirituality, if you want to call it that, is beckoning, does sort of hold the high ground, and is drawing uh, history back toward a, a feminizing archaic mode but you know you, you race is a phenomenon of groups of people in a sense so is femininity 
as an individual, you, you have to deal with the cards you're dealt. And we all have a feminine, a masculine, an androgynous, so forth and so on, component uh, in our psyche. But I, in a sense, I guess I'm a conservative because I don't see history doing anything other than recapturing what once was and which once was definitely under the aegis uh, of the feminine. Like, for instance, the World Wide Web, this vast technological artifact that's being put in place. All it is is a hard wiring of female intuition. You know, it's the engineering mentality is catching up uh, with the with the, the feminine outlook. Um, but your question disquiets me. I'm not sure. Uh, again, it's important as an individual not to identify with the characteristics of a group. This is, and it's very tricky because you're constantly dinned into thinking of yourself as black, gay, white, poor. You know. But those are, those are not really uh, qualities of individuals. Individuals are more complex than that. I mean, you may have a gay component. You may have a black uh, portion of your genetic heritage. But don't define yourself as a group. That's a trick that was launched by print in the act of creating this peculiar entity called the public. The public is a fiction of, of the print-created galaxy. Uh, you are not a citizen and you are not part of the public uh, unless you seriously do damage to your humanness in order to fit yourself into such a narrow definition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> act on the brain, those females have this huge hormonal swing away. I find that I have certain experiences during certain times of the month that I would consider a little And it is a mystery to me about women and men. There is a difference just in the chemistry of the body. So maybe there is really a, a not an up or down to it. You know, somebody's ahead and somebody's behind. It's just a difference to it. Well, uh, you know, we can talk about this, but since this is a room full of aspiring professionals, uh, th this is obviously an area where incredibly good work could be done using ordinary scientific sampling techniques. Uh, you probably know it's a scandal how much medical research is done on male human subjects and then extrapolated to all human subjects. I would be willing to bet you, just sitting here, that in 30 years of research on psychedelics, there has never been a study which attempted to differentiate uh, the difference in the response of men and women to the substance. It's like step one, but it's never been done. Again, you know, how does menstruation affect this? How does menopause affect this? How does the, the postpartum chemistry affect? These are easily answered scientific questions that have never been looked at because of gender bias in the scientific establishment. Yeah. That's a way of putting it. That drive, that aggressive drive, or that. <coughs> Uh -huh. Try that, 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 that's perhaps why 
So that's a very straightforward theory. If psychedelics inhibit and compete with testosterone, obviously their impact on men is going to be much more profound than their impact on women. Right there, you have a hypothesis. You well, could. Question, question, question. Has there been any research on that, or has, or has they actually had? Has anyone looked at the the No. The amount of research, you know, they, the first psilocybin project was is underway now, the first one in 30 years, and they're just trying to define the basic pharmacodynamics of the substance. They haven't looked at this stuff. I should say to you, you know, I'm urging you aspiring young professionals into these fields. Let me caution. That's because I'm an enthusiast and I want to know the answers to these questions. Professionally, it's a life of hell. You will not be promoted. Your colleagues will look upon you as a freak. You will find yourself, you know, it, my brother can talk to this point. It, it, it's not a pleasant thing to associate yourself with psychedelics uh, professionally. Yeah. Um, I guess something that... that I feel like we need to take responsibility for is the use of what is words like profound and transformative because what is profound and transformative for a male, <laughs> if it's more profound for a male, it might be just a different profound and transformative that's not on the male scale of what is profound and transformative. And I think that it's irresponsible to say that it's more profound for males, especially when no research has been done on the way in which well, I guess what I meant by more profound is that I think the average male is set down further from where he started than the average female is at the conclusion of a psychedelic experience. One of the things, let me mention this as long as we're on this subject, this is just throwing this out, but one of the things that's always fascinated me is the difference between male and female orgasm and how male orgasm Here's a place where it seems to be reversed. Male orgasm seems to lie fairly close to the surface and be a fairly unspectacular event most of the time. Where why is the female sexual response so much more dramatic? And why is there an orgasmic response at all? In other words, many animals don't have such a response. You can build a, an urge, you can build a sexual urge into an organism without this payoff of immediate experiential fireworks. Uh, there are species of fish where the female lays the eggs and the male swims over them and releases the sperm, and that's sex in that species. Uh, I sense, and I've never been able to articulate it, uh, that the DMT flash is very orgasmic in some sense. It's somewhat like a full-body orgasm, but it has components in it which are only encountered otherwise in orgasm. And I wonder what this orgasmic response is for, what evolutionary uh, uh, 
role it fulfills. It, it seems to emerge late in animal organizations. This is not something you trace back to flatworms or something. Uh, sexual org it seems most intensified in the primates. And, uh, you know, again, I have no answers, but I would bet when this is all teased apart, uh, the chemistry of orgasm and the chemist, the neurochemistry of orgasm and the chemistry of the DMT flash are going to be found to be at least cousins of each other uh, in some sense. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to make a, a comment about the gender issue that's interesting. Up. And I think that my experience with psilocybin is that it has an effect of, of healing and bringing back the wholeness of balancing. So if you have uh, too much testosterone that you brought up, or if you have you know, too much of one thing, it'll bring you back and direct you and center you. And since males usually do all the talking, that's why we have said psilocybin has had feminizing effect. Well, it has a feminizing effect on most of the people who have been doing the talking who take, you know, take psilocybin. I've also had experiences where I've been very, um, you know, times when I've been depressed and weak, where psilocybin has not made me very feminine. It's actually given me, you know, power. And I, have, I felt very like, um, I remember one time I went out and, and really liked the sound of bottle breaking. And I was breaking the bottle and I was yeah! It makes me feel really good. <laughs> build up, almost a building up of, of an ego when my ego was down. And when my ego was too big, it would pull it back down again. So that would then, you know, what Piggy was saying, that would then fit in, you know, that everyone takes it, will be balanced, will be kind of redirected and, and you know, led further along. So it's a kind of regulator, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's just not in tune with what's real. And, you know, extreme feminism and extreme masculinism are, are neither of them are real. They're both extremes. And uh-huh. it'll bring you back into a more integral wholeness of the way the world is. Well, I would certainly agree with that as a description of ayahuasca. Uh, there's a lot of work being done right now. I mean, I'm sure you all have heard of Prozac, which is the most widely prescribed antidepressant in the world now, and six or seven years ago it didn't even exist. Well, it, it, what's interesting about Prozac is that it is a serotonergic competitor uh, this is the same system that uh, the, the psychedelics are working on. And uh, I think probably we're converging on some kind of a breakthrough where uh, uh, sexual dysfunction, depression, psychedelic states are all going to be seen to be various uh, twiddlings of the serotonergic system and probably whole new families of drugs uh, will come out of this. Uh, I have never taken any antidepressant and at my brother's urging I took Prozac and I've always been contemptuous of all of the, you know, the Valium, that, that whole thing. That's not our church for sure. Uh, but, but I was very, very impressed with, with what Prozac was doing and in a way it was a strangely painless kind of psychedelic what Prozac seems to do is put you where where ayahuasca puts you four days after the trip 
In other words, there's no dramatic episode of intoxication. There's just a slow kind of getting real, which means dropping your illusions, which are usually what is depressing you. I think Prozac is being misprescribed in the sense that it's thought of as an antidepressant. I don't think it, that's quite correct. I think it's, it's the cure for seasonal light deficit syndrome. I think that as tropical primates, we paid a terrible price for conquering the temperate and, and subarctic zones of the world, and that is six months of, of kind of downness out of the year. And uh, uh, that, that can be chemically corrected. Our genetics are designed for the arboreal tropics, and yet we insist in living in places like Boston and Hamburg, which are so far north, you know, that you're physiologically dysfunctional seven months out of the year, and you don't know it, because so is everybody else there. Yeah. Have I'm, there may be a confusion here. Um, the, the way I'm familiar with Prozac being mentioned in connection with MDMA is that MDMA has a uh, toxic effect on the dendritic spines of the nerves. Uh, this is part of what you buy into with MDMA. But strangely enough, if you pre-dose yourself with Prozac, not as Prozac is supposed to be taken for depression, where you take it for 30 days and then like that. But if you just take a 20 milligram capsule of Prozac six hours before you take MDMA, it absolutely blocks this toxic effect. I have mixed feelings about mixing drugs and handing this information on, but on the other hand, this is a group of professionals. You should know this. It's a fact. It was published in Brain, uh, the Journal of Neurophysiology, and so forth and so on. Uh, MDMA by itself has a physiological profile that causes me to stay away from it. I have no quarrel with the effect, the, the experience, but the, when you can see histological damage to macro structures uh, in the nerve, you want to slow down a little and send a few tens of thousands ahead of you. Yeah. Is that how? Is that doing it once that you'll have that sort of damage? Or well, every time you take it, it has this effect. Oh, well, but let me say something about this damage that MDMA does. It does damage. You can see it. However, there is no behavioral sequelae. What does this mean? It means you don't act funny. You don't fall down twitching or your eyes go out of focus or become manic. Or so, so you can have two opinions about this. Well, if it destroys the structure that then there's no behavioral consequence, you must not have needed that structure. However, when we start tossing out chunks of our brain based on our own judgment, you, you have to wonder about that. Um, <laughs> you can always take psilocybin and say to it, 
in the middle of the second hour, BMDMA. <laughs> and uh, that's how I do my MDMA trip. Is to communicate with the plant, which is the plant's ability to tell us what, what their purpose is, what, how they can help us. We just have to learn how to listen. So, in the same way that you're saying that TC is a, is a um, communication and, and uh, information. But what he does is once the shaman has, has made contact with the plant, he doesn't have to give that plant to the person, he can use a messenger plant, and they use moxa in a homeopathic tincture. And because he knows the information of the plant, he can send the messenger for the information without ha actually having to give the plant itself. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether anybody's done that with psychedelics or whether you see that that's feasible to do with psychedelics. I assume, being a practical person, that it must not be feasible because, as you know, in, in the highly succussed homeopathic preparations, no physical trace of the original material can be found. If there were such a thing as homeopathic uh, psychedelics, they would be impossible to prosecute under the drug laws. What are you asking? I'm asking if seeing it as information that you, you can actually have a messenger plant. Like you're saying the shaman is the messenger between the worlds. What he's doing is using a, a fairly innocuous plant as the messenger between the information of, of the huge array of pharmacopoeia of what plants can do. And using just a, 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 a drop of that messenger to be able to give an experience. Well, in a sense, there's a parallel idea in the Amazon, which is uh, shamans take ayahuasca and then they take very, very, like, minuscule amounts of other plants that they want to learn about. And they say that the ayahuasca then uh, informs them of the properties of, of the other plant. Uh, this whole business of information and how it moves around in nature is an area where we are uniquely ill-fitted to understand it because we are objective materialists and it's very hard for us to understand and operate on the assumption that the world is made of language. We may say it so, but we don't know how to operationally operate with that perception. As we learn how to do that, I agree with you, not only plants, Everything seeks to communicate. Everything is somehow completed in an act of mutual recognition and understanding. Uh, nature is alive, not only biological nature, but, but the, the atoms and the continents and every, everything seeks to communicate. I think it, what psychedelics are is a kind of opening of our portals to this constant stream of communication that evolutionary necessity has uh, shut us away from. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, what do you think about the last thing that Terence just said? And I quote, I think what psychedelics are is a kind of opening of our portals to this constant stream of communication that evolutionary necessity has shut us away from." End quote. 
Well, I not only agree with that, I suspect that this feature of psychedelics is also the cause of most people coming back from these experiences with a significantly more green outlook than we previously held. In essence, experiences such as the ones that we have in an ayahuasca circle, well, they seem to provide a direct communication link to Gaia, or the heart of nature. In other words, the best way to go green is to psychedelicize yourself. Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you already know what I think about Terence's time wave idea, so I'm not going to repeat it now. But just to play devil's advocate, when Terence predicted that the following year was going to be one of the most significant years between then and 2012, well, I had to pause and see if I could find anything of significance that took place that year. To be honest, uh, for the most part, it wasn't all that extraordinary of a year, at least compared to now, except for one little thing that was completely unnoticed, I'm sure, by all but a very small group of people in this country. Because it was in August of 1996 that Osama bin Laden issued a message that was titled, and I quote, A declaration of war against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places. End quote. And while I doubt that Terence picked up on this either, I think it could be argued that this, in fact, was an extremely significant event that continues to have ramifications in the everyday life of all Americans, certainly, and many other people in the world as well. If you live outside of the States, you may not be aware of this, but the USA is no longer the land of the free. We've become a land of constantly watched and fearful people. East Germany and the Soviet Union never even came close to the level of surveillance that all Americans experience today. So, uh, in a way, I guess that Terence's prediction of a significant event taking place in 1996 may have been closer to the truth than even he believed at the time. Sometimes it's uh, the little things that make the biggest differences over time. And uh, that can be true in your own life as well, if you think about it. Now, I'm going to close with a bit of sad news that I should have discovered earlier. But on the 13th of January of this year, another important member of our worldwide psychedelic community died. While his name may not be a household word, the work of Dale Pendle has had a profound influence on many of the people who you've listened to here in the salon. Sadly, uh, I've podcast only one of Dale's talks here in the salon, but as it turned out, it was one of his more important talks. It took place at the 2006 Palenque Norte Lectures during the Burning Man Festival. And there, Dale first publicly articulated his concept of horizon anarchism. And this is a political concept that he used to describe the newly emerging anarchist communities at Burning Man. And in addition to the traditional anarchist concept of building a new society in the shell of the old, Dale used the phrase horizon anarchism to denote the current building of alternative structures while also planning for a long-term anarchist future, which was still on the horizon. I'm afraid that uh, the recording of this important talk isn't as clear as I'd like it to be, but, well, at the time all I had to record with was a little handheld cassette recorder that I placed near where he was talking. I posted this talk in November of 2006 as podcast number 55, and I'll link to it in today's program notes. Dale uh, is probably best known as the author of somewhere around 20 books about psychedelics, 
including the famous Pharmaco series. And if you aren't familiar with Dale and his work, I think it would probably be worth your time to read the obituary that John Hanna wrote and published on Arrowid.org. That's E-R-O-W-I-D dot org. And I'll link to that in today's program notes as well. And uh, as you know, you'll find those notes for all of the Salon podcasts at psychedelicsalon.com. And I hope that you can remember, uh, whether you're fully aware of this or not, but we live in a very special time. And it's special because this is the only time that you and I are ever going to have. This is your time. This is our time. So let's make the best of it, huh? And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>